This is Women's Australian Rules Football on RSN 927's digital channel Carnival. I'm Peter Holden and welcome to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast in Melbourne on RSN 927's digital radio channel Carnival, streaming via rsn.net.au and also via the RSN Racing and Sport app. This episode, our 197th overall, is also available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, the iHeartRadio website and app and at warfradio.com. Coming up on this week's show... Just the one guest. It's a one-hour, 45-minute in-depth interview with former North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos AFLW coach Scott Gowans. That'll be coming up in a few minutes' time. But first, the latest women's footy news. Obviously, the biggest women's footy news story in the last week has been the North Melbourne Football Club's decision to part ways with their full-time AFLW coach, Scott Gowans, to be replaced by a dual-role employee, Darren Crocker, currently the men's team pro scout. He will take over the AFLW reigns come November 2020. We'll obviously be chatting with Scott in a few minutes' time, but first, here's some reaction from Carlton AFLW coach and host of the RSN 927 Breakfast Club, Daniel Harford. I think full-time uh, AFLW staff uh, would be a bit jumpy now. Uh, and I'm only part-time, so I'm in a slightly different position. But there are uh, f- uh, coaches, a lot of the coaches are full-time coaches. And that would be a concern, I reckon. Like, if you look at Richmond, I immediately thought yesterday when I, when I heard the news that, oh, well, Richmond will pick him up and, and make him their coach because he's a fantastic coach. And he's been coaching women for, about, for ages, back in the old VWFL days at at Diamond Creek, he's been coaching for ages um, with the girls, which is one of the reasons he's so successful and understands it. But I think, I think if you're a full-time coach now with uh, all those footy department um, restrictions and limitations and they can find someone who could do a dual role um, like North Melbourne will do with Darren Crocker, who, who's a terrific coach. He's a race coach the, the men's team through interim periods. Um, that that would be an option that they'll probably take just to, to save cash. It's seemingly just a cash-saving measure. I don't think it's great for women's footy, I must admit, but it's, it's a business decision. And Scotty was saying yesterday, one of the articles I read overnight online, uh, that he understands it from a business perspective. It makes business sense. He's really disappointed because he's, he's worked really hard. He's a, he's a good coach. But it makes sense from a business perspective when you've got someone who could possibly do it in a dual role, like, Darren Crocker will do. But I don't, I don't think it's a good thing for women's footy, I must admit. In other news, the Adelaide Football Club held a virtual club best and fairest with Anne Hatchard taking out club champion with 67 votes ahead of runner-up Ebony Marinoff on 59 votes and third place Justine Mules on 52 votes. Here's Anne Hatchard speaking to the Crows website. Speechless. I really don't know what to say. Um, if you told me um, four years ago that I'd be... Um, in this position now, I probably would have laughed at you while eating some KFC or something. So um, it's just crazy to be in this position now. And um, I'm so thankful for the club for getting me on board and um, believing in me and seeing some kind of potential in me because, um, you know, it's been a, a really long journey and I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of this awesome club and team. Um, a few thank yous. I'd like to thank um, my family. They've been been there for me since um since day one through the ups and downs. 
um, of the four years at the club. Um, so mum, Marcus, Sarah, Kath, Beck, um, thank you so much. Uh, you've really helped me um, shape, shape, help to shape me into who I am today, not only as a person, but I'm an athlete as well. Um, I'd like to thank the club, um, all the coaches, support staff. Um, you know, you, you kept me going along this journey and ultimately helped me get to, helped me get to where I am today. Um, and I'm so thankful um, for everything you've done. Um, I'd also really like to thank Woz, um, Woz my man. Um, you've been great for me, helping me get my body in shape. Um, it's been a long journey with that, but I'm finally seeing some results, which is good. Um, I'd like to thank the sponsors. Um, you know, we wouldn't be able to um, be playing footy for the Crows if it weren't for you. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. I'm just, I'm in a lot of shock. Yeah. Hopefully we can all celebrate sometime later. The key dates for the 2020 AFLW sign and trade period have been announced. First of all, clubs will be permitted to sign up to 27 players, including rookies. The AFLW sign and trade period will commence at 12 p.m. on Monday, the 3rd of August. The trade period will close at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, the 12th of August. Resigning and restricted free agent period will close at 2 p.m on Monday the 17th of August and on Friday the 21st of August the delisted free agent period will close and the AFLW draft order will be confirmed. To grassroots footy and in Victoria two of the biggest suburban leagues the Northern Football Netball League and Eastern Football Netball League have cancelled their senior men's and women's football competitions for 2020. Northern Football Netball League CEO Peter McDougall explained to RSN 927's The Breakfast Club the procedure behind making the decision. It certainly became a lot clearer in the last couple of weeks. And we went through a pretty detailed process. Like We surveyed all our clubs, juniors and seniors. We've been talking to them one-on-one with presidents all the way through. The last week we had a more concerted one-on-one phone call with every senior president with uh, some really clear information that we're wanting to seek from them as far as their position on the season and and all bar one president said that um, one, they wanted to make a decision sooner and and two, that um, they thought the best decision would be to call it off. And finally, overseas, where the United States Australian Football League have released their return to footy safely guidelines. They are available at usafl.com forward slash COVID-19. The USAFL has also mentioned that they're hoping to make by July 15th a decision on whether the USAFL Nationals will go ahead in October in Ontario, California. And that's your latest women's footy news. So to our featured guest for this week, let me read you his youth girls and women's footy resume. In 2015, he took over as head coach of the Dandenong Stingrays Youth Girls Academy. That same year, he'd be assistant coach to Wayne Siegman, who was then head coach of the Vic Metro under-18 girls side, a side that would win the under-18 girls national championships in WA against Queensland. The next year, in 2016, as head coach of the Dandenong Stingrays, he would lead them to the TAC Cup Girls Academy Series Championship. Georgia Walker was his captain. Also in 2016, he would take over as head coach of the Vic Country Under-18 Girls side and lead them to their first ever victory at the National Championships. In fact, they would win twice against the same opponent, 
Queensland. In 2017, he became an AFLW assistant coach under Damien Keeping at Carlton. He would also take over as head coach of Diamond Creek in the VFLW. In that 2017 season, he would take a side that was injury-ridden and missed the finals the year before to the grand final. And along the way, beating their arch-nemesis Darabin twice in a season, something they had never done before. Also in 2017, again as head coach of the Vic Country under-18 girls side, they would take out the under-18 girls national championship with such names as Lucy McAvoy, Olivia Purcell, Eden Zanka, and Georgia G. Then in 2018, he would take over as head coach of Melbourne University in the VFLW and be appointed as head coach of the North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos in the AFLW to kick off in 2019. During that period, he would give second chances to those that had missed out on the draft previously, including Sophia Batangelo, Jessica Trend and future AFLW All-Australian Ash Riddell. In fact, our special guest has coached 15 AFLW All-Australians and has coached two-thirds of the AFLW League Best and Fairests. The 2019 AFLW season would be an impressive debut for the Kangaroos, just falling short of the semi-finals thanks to the quirk of the AFLW conference system and a final round loss to the Fremantle Dockers. In 2020, the Roos were a whisker away from making the AFLW grand final at a possible chance for revenge against the Fremantle Dockers. But then COVID-19 hit and the season was cancelled. So with the Kangaroos Premiership window looking well and truly opened and ready for another crack in 2021, it came as a shock last week when the North Melbourne Football Club elected not to renew the contract of this week's special guest. He will be replaced by a person in a dual role. Darren Crocker will be the men's team pro scout and the AFLW coach from November 2020. But after just outlining the resume of our special guest, there is no doubt this individual will be hired again in the footy community very quickly and will do a very successful job in whatever role they take over. It's our privilege to have on the line former North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos coach, Scott Gowans. Scott, how are you? Hi, Peter. How are you, mate? It's great to have you on the line, but we'd be hoping in better circumstances. It's been several days now since uh, the news uh, came forth that North Melbourne would not renew your contract. Um, how does it sit with you now a few days out? Yeah, I suppose you, you do tend to reflect. You, you get over the initial 24, 48 hours of shock. And um, yeah, and like anything in life, you're, you're competitive and you start to try and find reasons, I suppose, and justifications and... Yeah, you know, like I've had a lot of feedback from the club, which has been really nice and um, not surprising because it's that sort of club. But um, there is no reason other than it's financial, and this coronavirus has um, affected a lot of people. And you know, I won't be alone at the club, and won't be the only one in society that happens to lose a, a good job while the job's going really well. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos uh, later on in the interview, but I want to look at a few positive things first as we're going to go through and reflect on your career in youth girls and women's football to date. I want to throw at you this stat. Since you became involved, uh, first of all, in 2015, coaching the Dandy Dong Stingrays Girls Academy through until present day, 
you have coached a total of 15 AFLW All-Australians. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I haven't uh, yeah, I haven't reflected on a stat like that. So, um, that's, quite, that's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> I'm happy with that. <laughs> I'll, ju- I'll just rattle through the names for you. One or two, you're an assistant coach at that stage, particularly with your time at Carlton in 2017. But the names include Brianna Davey, Emma Carney, Darcy Versio, Emma King, Chloe Malloy, Christina Bernardi, uh, who was obviously at Diamond Creek, Jess Duffin, Jazz Garner, Madison Press-Parkas, Gabriella Pound, Karen Harrington, Olivia Purcell, Monique Conti, Caitlin Greiser and Ash Riddell. Fair list, isn't it? It's um, yeah. You just you maybe sort of reflect a little bit more there. I think it's part of um, you know, coaching is that you want to want to have a an impact on on footballers' lives. Um, and you know, if, if they just take one or two things away from from what I taught them over the years, then um, yeah, I can probably sit back in the armchair this afternoon and reflect a little bit more on that. That's, that's good. Let's take you on back to 2015-2016. Of course, we spoke to you last in a podcast format in uh, 2016. At this stage, you were coaching the Dandenong Stingrays Girls Academy. You actually came out of uh, uh, coaching originally at Long Worry, um, uh, formerly under Dean Rice, a former Carlton and St Kilda footballer. Um, when I spoke to David Lake on this uh, podcast, he says you have to change your thinking when it comes to coaching women's football compared to men's football. What did you feel you were getting yourself into when you made the, the skip from coaching country men's football into coaching under 18 girls? Yeah, it was um, it was quite the contrast, to be honest. I I, I think that year I coached Longworry, um, Big Country, and Danny Stingrays all in the one year. Um, so it was three coaching gigs, and very different because you had the, the men, which were very competitive and um, part of the contest, and all about the effort. So you had that sort of more of a rah rah feel to it, and then you had the Danny Long Stingrays girls. It was just just getting going the academies and um, some of them were just talent ID'd from other sports so they, they didn't even know about footy so six, 15, 16, 17 year old girls <laughs> come together and then you had the best of the under 18s at the uh, at the state level so it was quite a year um, but so good for your coaching because David David was right You um, what you have to do is control your emotions and you know I'm, I'm happy to admit back um, even when I was at Berwick before that, you you do tend to get caught up in men's local footy with the emotion of it all because you're trying to build emotion or you're trying to sell emotion. And, you know, the umpires come under criticism and the, you know, the opposition coaches and, you know, you're just the whole thing. You just, it, it really, <laughs> reflecting, it isn't healthy. And it's not great for your coaching um, if you don't get the opportunity to coach where you need to control that and then, coach people that have either played no football or played a lot of footy. And I found I found that the um, particularly the state level with Metro and with country, with big country, the girls that got into those squads, they, they were amazing players. Most of them are playing AFLW football now and um, they really they really required they, they were hoping to one day there would be an AFLW. So they, they were prepared to do whatever you wanted um, but they wanted to they wanted you to treat them as though um, they were equal to, to guys at that stage, really. They, they didn't want you to teach them to kick Mark Campbell. They wanted to know how to press. They wanted to know 
had a role in and out of a stoppage, what a stoppage exit was. They wanted to know leading patterns, all, all that. They, and it's so good for your, for your coaching. And um, I, I would say that if I ever went back to local Mansfield, I'd be a way better coach now. I'm keen to ask you about that part where you're talking about those that have been ID'd via talent identification and they're coming across for the first time to playing Aussie rules. We, we don't have to worry about it necessarily at VFL and, and AFLW level anymore because it's evolved to the stage that we've got the girls that have come all the way through from Auskick level. But there's still some, for example, at, at suburban football level where you've got the girls that are absolutely dead keen, that have always played footy for goodness knows how many years. And then you've got those that have just come to the game because they've just seen AFLW. How do you coach those two groups where one lot's pushing for more, more, more to get better and excel while the other lot is still trying to get a hold of the basics? Yeah, I think you've got to, um, you've got to help get the players to help you do it. The, it's, um, it can't be done by a coach and it certainly can't be done by a local coach that's just coaching with him and himself and one assistant. Um, you really either need a development coach or you've got to rely on your more senior players to help you out with that. And um, a lot of it can be done from a, from a kick mark handball point of view. A lot of it can be done in the player's own time. But the actual nuances of the game, like match sim and um, half ground, full ground drills, it's, it's got to be driven by the players where they, they help the players learn really quickly. And, um, and that also has its benefits though because I'm a, I'm a big one with leadership that you, you need to have a flat leadership structure and I'm really keen to, you know, you get your players like an Emma Carney and a Jazz Garner now and Emma King and all these, these really good leaders that they do grab a bid start in the North Melbourne case um, and, and take, her, take her on their coattails and, and teach her the nuances of the game. Even at AFLW, Viv, you might have noticed that Viv side gave away one or two free kicks in the goal square just from not knowing the game of footy. And it's 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 getting less and less and, the, and this year's draft is exceptional and the kids coming through will come through from Kick now mostly and go right through the system, which is great. But, you know, from a leadership point of view, there's something in that where a brand-new player that's clearly athletically talented can come into a squad and the coach can do what he can, or he or she can do what, what they can, it's got to be player-driven, and that's really healthy. What do you put down as the key to success for being able to take a, a cup uh, early on into your youth girls' coaching career in 2016? You led the Dandenong Stingrays to take out what was then known as the TAC Cup Girls Academy Series. Uh, Georgia Walker led the Stingrays uh, to the Premiership. Um, of course, Georgia would be a uh, injury signee to Collingwood and unfortunately would put her career on hold uh, with the Saints due to uh, concussion. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the main the main ingredient is to is the if the players buy into you as the coach, um, then the rest is really just you know, what you put on the whiteboard. And I've always been really clear that my coaching coaching philosophy is huge. And some coaches will have two, three, four pages on their philosophy, and um, I have one page and I have three one paragraph, and I can remember it off by heart. It's just clarity, communication, preparation, um, and then since last. 18 months I've added respect as a fourth word and um, you know those those four words everything falls under that so if you if the players have clarity of the way you want to play the coach has clarity on what the players want out of their footy if you're communicating all the time whether they're dropped whether they're going well what's the feedback sort of 
cycle can be. Um, and as long as you prepare, if the player prepares the best they can, the coach prepares the best, and you respect each other in the process, geez, there's not a there's not a lot else to it. You can you can have the the trickiest, most difficult forward line structure in the world, but at the end of the day, if you if you haven't got those four pillars right, um, it's no point having this intricate um, layered system of a game plan. Also in 2016, you would go on to coach uh, the Vic Country Youth Girls team. Uh, prior to that, you were an assistant coach under Wayne Siegman, who, of course, would coach Collingwood for three years in the AFLW. How daunting is it coming into a role coaching Vic Country? Prior to that point, they had not won a game at youth girls level. Yeah, it, it was. I can remember the first win, too. It was at Sandringham against Queensland, against Craig Starfovich, and the weather was terrible. Like the gale was blowing sideways. It was pouring rain, um, and the girls got their their first win under Georgia Walker. And um, I, I can just remember that last call. We came from behind, and um, just the excitement on the girls' faces and the parents, and there was a real celebration. I think they'd lost. I can't remember. I'm going to say 13 games in a row or something like that. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a special moment and. That really kick-started some of those girls believing in themselves to play some really good football. And um, yeah, Holly Whitford sticks out in that game as well. She was she was one that played really well, went on and became. She sort of took that as a trademark then to dig in and get into a contest. Whereas before she more, she was a little bit more of an outside player because of her size. Um, so yeah, I reflect back on that. And then the following year, obviously we went on and um, didn't lose a game and went on and won it. So that was that was great as well. We should mention from that uh, 2016 side as well, some that got All-Australian honours at youth girls level. As you mentioned, Georgia Walker, the captain. A handy little footballer, some people might know, Lily Mithen, who, of course, yep. would go on to Melbourne. And two players who you'd also coach um, at Diamond Creek uh, would be Isabella Eyre, of course, Carlton, and up to uh, the Brisbane Lions, and Rennie Hicks as well, of course, at uh, Carlton. Yeah, yeah, yeah Rennie is uh, currently at North Melbourne VFLW. Um so it's funny how the, the players they turn into young women and they, some of them take different paths. Some of them you know, don't go on with their footy for various reasons. And But I, I do like I do like the ones that um, you know, they'll go away and then they'll come back and they'll call you and say, look, can I come and play wherever you're coaching? And, um, yeah, and that, has a, that has a nice connotation to it that you must have done something right previously in their lives. And um, yeah, there's quite a, quite a few footballers that play um, AFLW football that'll ring me every now and again just for a bit of advice if they're doing it a bit tough and um, yeah and obviously we don't share a lot of information but it's more just a chat about things and I think that too shows that you have an impact on people's lives even when they're 17 and 18 years old We'll pick up on a, in a moment's time about careers and how uh, the women are handling it as uh, part-time footballers but Rolling around to 2017, you end up being uh, taken as an assistant coach at Carlton for the inaugural AFLW season. How did that process um, come about where you'd be under Damien Keeping for that first AFLW season? Yeah, so um, Damien Keeping and I were assistant coaches under Wayne Seekman at Big Metro. And um, we didn't know at the time, we were over in person, but we didn't know at the time that Damien had the Carlton job, but... When he got the Carlton job, he, he asked me if I would come across with him. And then the tough had to choose between him and Wayne. <laughs> so, because Wayne wanted me to come to Collingwood as well. And, um, 
I ended up going to Carlton just on the basis that I felt it was it had a it had a not an affiliation, but there were a lot of Diamond Creek players playing at Carlton um, at that stage, and they had a at that stage in the Pipeworks was a almost like a little bit of a joint venture to um, be a local feeder for the northern area, and I liked that idea. And if that had gone ahead, I was going to have a little bit to do with that, but that didn't end up getting up um, through the AFL. But the natural the natural progression was to to coach Diamond Creek from from that conversation. That's why I went um, to Carlton and. I really enjoyed that. That first year was, yeah, that was amazing. But you reflect back at the moments in that year, um, that first game, the first bounce, um, incredible um, at Icon Park. And then the moments where, you know, the game got tough. Excuse <clears throat> me. In the, the third week, I think we played GWS and they came to, to Icon Park with no one gave them any hope and they beat us. It was, it was like, wow, you know, this, this, you can actually be pulled apart. It was my first sort of lesson that, Okay, I had a, I had a, I was coaching the back line then, and I had a GWS forward line that really tore our backs apart. So it, it wasn't. It turned into more of a, um, okay, let's roll the sleeves up and get right into this now. And um, yeah, there were some really good moments in that first year. What's it like preparing a side? for that first game, uh, when you take in consideration a couple of things. One, the opposition. They they know of the players on the other side, but no one knows what style of game plan they're going to play because it's the first time playing together as a team. And it's also 16 a side, not 18 a side that they've grown up with. And then second of all, obviously, the nerves. No one knew what kind of big crowd it was going to be. And, of course, you wouldn't know until the bounce down of it would be a lockout. No, all, all of that tied in. You're right. It was the preparation was interesting. So pre pre that we played Melbourne in a practice match at Icon Park, and um, they mixed the near threw things around, tried playing with wingers, not playing with wingers, playing with one winger, all those sort of things. And we thought going into the season that some teams there was no restrictions. wasn't We didn't have the you know the five six five rule then, um, but. We didn't know if a side would play with wingers or not play with wingers. And that throws you out a little bit because the ball's won. In the, first of all, you've got to win it in the centre. And to, to play a plus one or a, a, some, sometimes teams, I know GWS, Alan McConnell played with, with six. He played, um, instead of playing five fours, he played six fours, which is was a great move because it, it clearly worked. Um, and then through our structure, actually, we had to match it up. There, was little, there were little nuances before the game. It was almost like you had to go into that match doing your opposition analysis on Collingwood's best players, but you couldn't really, you couldn't do much more than that. Like you only saw them for one practice match, um, and things were changed around. And then it, it was, it was a real, um, it was a real game of chess that game. And you know, Collingwood had their chances and were unlucky to lose that game, but. Yeah, it was a special night, and just reflecting back to you, right? We came out of the change rooms before the players, so I was walking with Jane Lange from the coach at Darabin, now at Melbourne, of course. And <coughs> excuse me, um, and Jane, Jane and I walked around the boundary line. She's got tears rolling down her face, and I thought, wow, yeah, you know, geez, it means a lot to these these women, you know. And then the crowd, the noise was just incredible. And then we couldn't get up to the coaches' box because there were so many people sitting in the aisle. Trying to get up to the coach's box, and again couldn't get down at quarter time because there's everyone and there's not enough security. And but the app, there's no trouble. It's just the atmosphere was amazing, and I, I reckon um, 
maybe halfway through the third quarter, Damien keeping turned to us and sort of said, just just let him play because you couldn't you couldn't do a lot because you could tell the girls were buzzing. The emotion of it all, it was like they're um they've finally been accepted into an elite sporting environment. And um, geez, it was a tough game of footy though. I can remember the, the some of the hits and the tackles were unbelievable. You mentioned the name Jane Lange. We'll bring that up in a moment's time because it has a bit to do with your time at the Creekers. And let's mention uh, going to Diamond Creek. It's it's a bit funny. As much as it's a side based in the northern suburbs, it feels very much like a country footy club up there at the Creekers, being at plenty War Memorial Park up at that ground with the north-south and you kick it down the south end, it'll go down the hill and it'll stop the game for about <laughs> 60 seconds. Uh, what, was it, what was it like coming into the Creekers Football Club for the first time? And we do remember this is the Diamond Creek Women's Football club it's a standalone women's club yeah um very special and i i love my time at north and i'll always forever and a day speak very highly of north my favorite year of football was the diamond creek year um just an amazing club and um yeah just the the and because it's so community-based the girls um a friend and mates, and they they just needed a little bit of structure around their game, and um, but just the functions and the the way the canteen runs, the volunteers. If anyone got into trouble or you know, either lost a job or their car broke down or something like that, you know, it's just everyone backed everyone up, and there are a lot of special people that run that club. And one day someone will write a book about it, and. You know, I, only, I was only there for a year, so I'm only a small part of it. But if, if you look on Twitter yesterday, you know, Lauren Moorcroft, she she had a day with four of them, I think, are having babies at the moment or just had babies and Shay Audley's pregnant. And they put a photo up and you look on that and go, wow, they're still really good friends. And, you know, surely that's what a sporting club is about, that you have that friendship. And they've all played AFLW against each other and they crack in so hard. I, I can remember Shay Audley... Um, she almost killed Steph Chochi in that first game. and <laughs> it, But they're good mates. That's just the way it is at, at Diamond Creek. And I often compare, in my head, Diamond Creek to Melbourne Uni. Melbourne Uni was an amazing club as well, but in a different way. And um, you know, Laura Kane ran that club so well. It was just really run. And that, but they had a different culture, and the culture was more about... Um, I suppose, what's next for the girls and this, you know, we, we have to be good because we are good type attitude, which is great from a winning perspective. Um, very friendly club, great committee. But the Diamond Creek one was really built on mateship and if we lose, we lose together. So it was more that in that trenches type type um, thought process, I, I think. And you know, people like Tanya Hetherington and Kirby Hicks and, and Steph Chachi, all of them, Katie Loins, Al Downey, Al special, special people and um, so competitive, just all I really did. To be honest with you, in a nutshell, my game plan at Stingrays, Big Country uh, and Diamond Creek was pretty similar. And then you learn things at AFLW level that I did at Carlton and you develop because you go through courses and things. So but the philosophy and the, the offensive ball movement that, that I like to do is all it's pretty much the same since 2015. Um, and then you just get better at doing it and better at training it. 
You talk about that Creekers mentality where they gather around each other. Um, I found out in 2016 they were having a rough year. I think it was either me or Christy Williams said they once played like witches yeah. hats, and believe me, they ripped into yeah. me for that comment. But <laughs> they, 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 they were coming off a, a, a tough 2016 where they had a stack load of injuries, and for the first time yeah. in quite a while, they missed the finals. So they're coming into 2017, and the sides that you had to budge out of the top four were the likes of... Darabin, who were going for their fifth flag in a row. You had uh, Melbourne Uni in there that were getting stronger and stronger. You had uh, the St Kilda Sharks, who even though they were a young side, you, everyone sensed that they're an up-and-coming team. And then you had the Eastern Devils. And at that stage, everyone thought that the Eastern Devils were essentially taking over Diamond Creek's role, playing in a similar fashion to what the Creekers had played. Hard at the football, not necessarily the most skillful side around or the best structured, but they would beat you in the inside contest. Yeah. That was always yeah. Diamond Creek's kind of method, particularly with plenty of War Memorial Park when it got muddy and turned to an absolute cow paddock. That style of football worked for them. How did yeah. you go about changing that mindset of this style of gameplay is not going to win you games against Darabin? You have to learn this keepings off model. Yeah. So what I did is I watched the last five games um, that Diamond Creek played the year before. Um, I knew I was coaching them yeah, from about round 11 on the year before. So I, I deliberately paid um, a lot of time, spent a lot of time doing that while I was at, I was at Carlton that year as well, um, setting AFLW up with Damien. And I went and um, watched them and I thought, okay, that's how they played, no problem. It was, the game was at Eastern Devils that I went and watched and it was an unbelievable. Like the mud the mud was so thick. It was incredible. And I watched that game and I thought, okay, who's the best? And learned what a powerhouse Darabin was. So I actually went and watched Darabin's last four games. And um, I, I nearly turned around and quit, to be honest, after quarter time because they were so bloody good. <laughs> they were incredible. And I don't know how far in front they were. They might have been 40 points in front at the first change and I thought, okay, it might have been because of the, it was a little bit of a breeze. I thought, okay, I was against the St Kilda Sharks at the Peanut Farm. Anyway, I watched the second quarter and they went further ahead. They were like 78 points in front at half time. Oh, my God. But they, the way they moved the ball through Karen Paxman in particular, uh, Daisy Pierce, and then once they got it over halfway, Katie Brennan influence in the forward half, not just with the ball, but because the opposition team spent so much time trying to stop her, that it dragged holes, it created holes. So if Katie Brennan didn't didn't get it, you'd have Siobhan Hogan coming in and taking them. They had a lot of good footballers. And Darcy Bessio, just you can write a lot of your names. And I, I thought to myself, there's got to be a way to beat them. So I actually, um, I actually videoed Two of their the last two games they played from behind the goals, and presented it to the to the board at Diamond Creek, and said, "I'm going to play a little bit differently. My philosophy is still going to be we want to kick out score teams and want to move the ball a certain way, but everything we do has got to be to beat Darabin." Then when the fixture came out, I think we played Darabin round four at Diamond Creek, and um, it was the first we beat them by points, maybe maybe two points. So yeah, but Tangelo kicked that goal um, after the siren. And it was the first game they had lost in, I don't know how long, a long, long time. And uh, second, lo- second loss of the year, Melbourne Uni, I think, got them in the opening game. Yeah, okay, that's right. They did too. 
And then I thought to myself, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. So we, we came up with that. We, add, we added a few things in the game plan, which were all to do with defensive structure uh, and structure around the back end of the stoppage. We thought if we could slow them in the stoppage, win the ball back, and then go out the other side is, in a nutshell, what we tried. And it worked really well. And, you know, we got right through to the – I think we finished top. Did we finish top that year, Peter? I can't remember. I believe you did because Diamond, pardon me, Darabin at one stage were almost going to fall out of the four until they uh, got a wiggle on yeah, late in the right. season. That's right. And then, um, yeah, beat them in the second semi-final. Uh, well, sorry, won the second semi-final, that's right. Then we played – who did we play in the, in the preliminary final? We played uh, – you, um, you didn't play in the preliminary. You no, we went, went, you went straight final, through, right. yeah. And then Darabin went to the preliminary final then came in and beat us and – at, at um, Eddie Head Stadium, and um, you know, I I still joke with Jane. I still message Jane, and um, she she gave us a, a bit of a lesson that day. And credit to her, she they played a little bit differently that day in the grand final, and um, we were slow to start, so we gave them the edge. And and you know, the last thing you want to do is give a team like Darwin a little bit of confidence that we did, and then. Second quarter, we were able to peg it back a little bit from a statistical point of view. And then we came home like a steam train in the last quarter and lost by seven points. But um, there are a few things that, that Jane did with on field with her coaching that were you know, really good. And I, I rate Jane so highly. I think she's you know, she's right up there. And you know, other than her personal circumstances, she would have been coaching AFLW already. Let's talk about um, leading up to that finals campaign, including some of the players that you managed to get in your side, including Isabella Eyre, Emma Grant, Jess Kennedy, Karen Harrington. A, a number of them actually coming from the Bendigo Thunder feeding into the Creekers. Yeah, yeah, yeah that and that wasn't through um, that wasn't through anything other than um, hard work. To be honest, we we, we ended up um, we ended up getting Emma Grant. Um, I went up there and had a coffee with Emma Grant and. What, I mean, what a great human being she is. And and she she was the captain of Bendigo. She really didn't want to move but could see that her pathway into AFLW might be better in the VFLW. So we tried to do a, a bit of a deal with Bendigo where they would come in and out up into the permit stage, and um, which was June 30, and then see what happens from there. But it, it just wasn't going to work. Cause only, I can't remember the time, so they changed the rules all the time. But it might have been you were able to play four games, I think, before then you had to go to either, either way. But Bendigo were a powerhouse and they, quite rightly so, wanted their players to stay with them. Um, and, yeah, we had to do a little bit of work to get them there. But once we got once we got there, Granny fitted straight in. Karen Harrington, same thing. Just, geez, you know, great people, but really hard workers at training. It's no, it's no sleep that those, those two go on and have an amazing career and, um, yeah, and the grant just obviously recently retired, um, but just worked so hard that year. And they travelled. They, they, the deal was basically, I think it might have been they didn't have to come Tuesday training; they could come Thursday training and play. And I reckon they might have missed three Tuesdays, and that was it. They through the winter they'd travel the hour and a half. They'd you know up and down, share the drive. It was Jess Kennedy was the other one as well. Um, you know, from Bendigo, just the effort that the playing group put into that season, um, the seven-point loss in the grand final was shattering. But, you know, so proud of the way that group bonded and really well-run club um, with 
Scott Chisholm and Chris O'Connor at the time, President, Vice President, just um, David Loke, just people that, you know, Loke has, has been at the club forever. He's, he's really the heart and soul of that Diamond Creek Football Club. And um, I, I really enjoyed my year there. It was really good. Two players actually in that side that you recruited in, one being a local, one coming out of Fitzroy, out of the old VWFL Division Three, yep. Sophie Abitangelo and Ash Riddell, both coming yep. to your side, did well at the Creekers in their first year, didn't get picked up in the AFLW, particularly Ash Riddell, which had everyone scratching everyone's head going, hang on, she's in the VFLW Team of the Year. Why hasn't she been drafted? Of course, luck's a fortune. They fall into your lap at North Melbourne for 2018, uh, 2019, yeah. pardon me. Yeah, I... I still shake my head at that. I um, it, it's a bit of a long story that one with with those two, particularly Ash Riddell, I suppose. But in a nutshell, they um they were promised stuff by a couple of the clubs that just the clubs just let them down, and um it was disappointing. And um I know at Carlton we we um I didn't do the list. It's Graham Bergen was a list manager and David Keaton, but I was absolutely part of it. I sat on the with the with the other two and had every intention of taking it. It just didn't go that way because we hadn't, we hadn't had a ruckman at that stage and Al Downey was still sitting there in the draft and we couldn't believe Al Downey's dropping down so low. Um, you know, I know everyone, I, I love Emma King to death and I, I think um, Al Downey's namesake at Darabin pretty good as well, but I think Al Downey was the best ruckman in the competition. She went last in the draft, which is unbelievable. Yeah, it just didn't go Ash's way and she was frustrated and angry and um, she didn't answer my call for about three weeks and we finally caught up and I just said to her, look, in, in that space of time, I, I knew we had the North job and um, I said, I want to I want to take it. And she said, I'm not playing footy anymore. And um, you know, thank God she did because she's one of the superstars of the competition. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time for Ash and for Sophie. Sophie did it tough as well. She was... Um, told that she was likely to go to a, to a club, and um, yeah, they they let her down a little bit there as well. But to their, both their credits, they worked so hard and got themselves so fit that winter at Melbourne Uni um, that they were a hundred percent, you know, heading for the for the AFLW, even if we hadn't promised them a spot. I want to talk about that second semi-final and then the grand final uh, against Darabin. Um, two completely yeah. different games, how they worked out. We should put into context, to be fair, to Darabin as well, is that coming into that second semi-final, what was meant to be a bye week before the finals got changed about a month out when the AFL introduced the AFLW State of Origin game, Victoria versus the Allies. And a number of uh, players from Darabin, probably more than any other club, played in that game. And the one yeah. thing that we noticed in the first quarter when we called that game was uh, it was Elise O'Day and Daisy Pierce getting tackled or missing kicks, and we're like, "Geez, you know, for two guns yeah. of the competition, they really seem off." But to be yeah. fair to Diamond Creek, and as we mentioned um, in, in the final quarter, when you had the game won, we said sides have beaten Darabin before, maybe through luck, maybe through a bunch of Darabin injuries, but this was the first time a side's controlling the ball, and Darabin can't yeah. get not only can't get their hands on it, they don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and that was the deliberate tactic on that on that ground. It was a massive ground, and that that second semi final was probably the best game of football we probably played the grand final too early. To be honest, the, the form we showed in that second semi final, from a, um, I suppose from the players executing a few different tactics, was.
was amazing. And you know, we simply we simply used our wingers um, in a four way rotation on ground and one off. So we basically had five five wingers to all all um, all set up to control the ball. So basically, we were short kick or I think we were plus sixty short kicks and eighty possessions or something like that. And we just possessed the ball and. Once we got it over the forward half, then we, we, we just basically looked to Chloe Malloy and uh, Christine Bernardi. And, um, and and those two just did the work. Chloe Malloy did a, a special job. Which her, her role was actually to take Libby Birch away. Um, and in doing that, she, instead of just running to a certain spot to take Libby away, what she then did was try to get rid of Libby and leave. That would drag another Darabin defender in. Um, so they're almost a little bit too worried about Chloe um, and that freed Christine Bernardi up to, to take control of the game and um, they just they just executed so well and you know, from Garrett to Devon they, they, they're tough they're well coached they had amazing talent and again they, they you could tell the spirit they play with they loved each other and um, really good game of footy that second semi-final you actually mentioned the name Chloe Malloy, and it makes me flash back to another game against Darabin. Was the one that you lost at Preston City Oval, and I remember you came yeah. upstairs that day to talk about the feedback from that game, and and this shows how much the side developed in the space of maybe less than two months in the way when it came to structure. Uh, when they did lose the game, they only lost it by about two goals. The turnovers came as a result where they attempted to do a switch, but they went at a 90-degree angle, which allowed uh, allowed the player receiving the ball to be a sitting duck. And in one occasion, the ball got punched by Lauren Arnell. They ran on and kicked the goal in what was really an arm wrestle game. And I think the only yeah. person who got it right, and we talked about post-game, was Chloe Malloy, who when she switched, went at a 45-degree angle going forward, which created some runs. Um, yeah, so how much did they take out of that lesson from that game they lost compared to, okay, now it's clicked in their heads, right, now we know what we've got to do? Yeah, a lot. Because I think we played, might have been deep, but it was one of the, the lesser, and no disrespect to them, but they weren't having a great year. It was one of those sides that weren't having a great year. Um, yeah, Seaford, we guarded with injuries that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we actually did such a review on that Darabin game that we actually went and tried stuff that when we play them again, this is what we're going to do. So we we almost ignored the opposition to move. The, almost, to be honest, it became a glorified training drill. Um, and I, I'm i going to say we only won by three or four goals instead of what we did in round the earlier round when we played them and won by 15 goals. Um, and but the players were so focused on Darabin that you know, in hindsight, as I said, our second semi-final was probably the players bringing all that information in and going bang, and then getting to the grand final and going, okay, we'll do the same thing. But yeah, it just uh, just got off such a poor start. I don't think we're going to talk about the grand final. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 we we do. To be to be fair to the Darabin yeah, Falcons, no. because coming yeah. coming into that grand final, Darabin in a rare case had to take the long way around. And to be honest, we're lucky to get there. I don't want to say the word choke, but St Kilda were in front at three-quarter time. And unfortunately, just being a young side and Darabin being in many finals campaigns, just knew how to put the vice on, squeeze the life out of St Kilda to the point that they cracked. And then Darabin got over the line by a goal and a thriller at Coburg. Um, Darabin get to the grand final and... 
I tipped Diamond Creek to win, and at that stage, I said maybe Darabin's got a quarter and a half of good football in them. They look spent. And we should mention that Darabin and a lot of the players that were playing in AFLW had been playing football for three years straight without a break. That includes summer academies, pre-season for AFLW, exhibition games, state matches as well. So it looked like they were pretty tired, their, their, their star players. Um, it will, I, I still believe I was accurate. Darabin won, but it looked like they played maybe a quarter and a half of good football, but that was enough. Is it fair to say the game was won between the years, that... Darabin got the early jump and maybe that haunted some of the Creekers because that's how they got done in 2014. That's how they got done in 2015 when they had the wind at Coburg and blew that first quarter. Was it those memories coming back that all of a sudden they start to get nervous, the skills start to go a bit, the structure seems to become a bit loose? Yeah, I agree with that. A lot of it, particularly in the first half, a lot of it was between the years and... um, now, we had players fumbling that weren't usually fumbling. Um, Chloe Malloy got injured um, from a big from a big bump, and um, we should say yeah, she they, still kicked the goal. <laughs> she did. She still kicked the goal, and yeah, I, you know, there's not many footballers that I don't rate highly. As, as you know, I mean, she is the one I rate highly over a lot of good footballers I've coached, and um, I. I Everyone asks me who's the best footballer, and I still say Chloe Malloy, but she's Jazz Garner's close, and um, it's 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 a tough one. But that that game, I think you're right, just between the years. But Arizona also played a, a different style to what they did in the second semi final, and they they came out and they worked their butts off. And I'm, I'm sure if you looked at James Whiteboard, it would have said something like "Get a good start, get on top of them," and Watch them implode, or something like that. I think that's what they did. And just speaking with the with the Diamond Creek girls, they they often talk about how much banter the Darabin girls gave them on the ground. And um, yeah, they did. They got inside their heads, and it took us it took us a half a footy to regroup. And you now, if the game goes for another five minutes, who knows? We but we'll come home with momentum. But yeah, I, I still say Darabin won fair and square, and um, deserved winners. Well coached. They played really well amazing bunch of women that have a record in sports that they should be so proud of. You mentioned Jane Lang because you had the privilege of coaching alongside her when you were assistant coaches together at Carlton in the 2017 season. Then you took her on as an opponent four times throughout the 2017 VFLW season. Is she someone that should be coaching AFLW now, considering we're always on the lookout of who will be the next female coach to get to the top level? Yeah, she should. There's a short answer. She's um, Jane speaks for herself, but she's um, she's chosen to um, to worry about her family and her career and um, away from footy, and then you know dabble in footy. And she's been spent time at Melbourne and still there now. And you know she's done lines and she's done development, dropped down to development coach, and worked so hard on her footy. I've done courses with Jane. Um, just a smart footy person and. I learned so much from Jane. She's a, a really well um, credentialed coach, but she's also got a personality that's jovial at the right time. She's a, a teacher. She's you know, she's able to pick moments when to be funny and you know, when to give a really good, decent whack as well. So um, yeah, Jane could coach AFLW very easily and she'll be a wonderful AFLW coach. And um, I'm sure that's not too far away. 
You're listening to our interview with former Kangaroos AFLW coach Scott Gowans here on RSN 927's digital radio channel Carnival and the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast. Coming up in a moment's time, we'll talk about Scott moving to coach Melbourne University in the VFLW and taking on the role as the inaugural AFLW coach with the Kangaroos. We are the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation, striving to empower our most marginalised communities through literacy and education. Literacy is having a voice. Literacy is opportunity. Literacy is dreaming big. Literacy is freedom. Today, you can help end inequality and give every child access to our life-changing and proven literacy programs. Your support is vital. Donate now at alnf.org. You're listening to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast here on RSN Carnival. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks for your company. We're chatting with the former Kangaroos AFLW coach, Scott Gowans. Let's talk about your jump across in 2018 to Melbourne University and to North Melbourne. We spoke with last week uh, Clara Fitzpatrick, who was only played underneath you at Diamond Creek, but then came across to play with you at uh, Melbourne University VFLW. And we talked about this a number of times on air during our Match of the Day coverage. But when you're coming into that role first, how weird is it to be employed by one club, coaching another club, but trying to get the best out of it for that club that you were employed with? Yeah, that's a little bit of a, a sort of a hard one. My my philosophy on this is with with Clara and Caitlin Greiser, um, Lauren Aaron, players like that. I at Melbourne Uni, we we um, developed players to play AFLW football, even if it wasn't going to be with us. And my first year at Melbourne, we, we got to the end of the year and had some really honest chats with with those type of players that I mentioned, and said the best thing for their footy would be to go and play the next winter at either St Kilda or Richmond because they're expansion clubs. And we gave them the contact, we put them in touch, said, but if you don't make it there, um, you know, let us know. And in Lauren, Lauren Aaron's case, she went and trialled, didn't get through either one. Um, came back and said, what do I do? And I said, well, Gold Coast have got one. And um, she said, oh, I don't know if I said, well, think about if you were keen to move. And then she was keen to move she really wanted to play AFLW and she she did. She went and played at the Gold Coast. She got through their trial day and, and did very well in AFLW. So I think it's, a part of it is, and this is where Melbourne Union is very good, that the philosophy was to develop players and get them into AFLW, even if it wasn't going to be with North Melbourne. And Caitlin Guys is another one and you know, just a great person in footy. And I, I encourage her to go to St Kilda. And I'm so glad she did because, you know, people, people, Judge the book by cover, and you, you know, she was a little bit slow. She, she, perhaps doesn't fit the prototype of an athlete back back in um, in that first season at Melbourne Uni. She was young, uh, lots to learn about the game, but she worked so hard. And then you know, Peter Seal's done an amazing job with her, and, and really changed her from being a a young person with a lot of talent into a, a, a young woman with. You know, a great attribute and clearly can play AFLW really well. 
Since we mentioned Clara Fitzpatrick, I should bring up one statistic. You have coached uh, five players who were born outside of Australia. They include uh, formerly at Melbourne University, VFLW, Katie Clatt, Clara Fitzpatrick, of course, now at the uh, at St Kilda, uh, Laura corrigan Jaray at Diamond Creek. Of course, she was then uh, playing with Melbourne AFLW. And then also you'd coach uh, Mariah Schoeger and uh, Aileen Gilroy, of course, the two Irish women you have currently with North Melbourne. Yeah, right, you've done your homework. Do you want to be my manager? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, I didn't know that either. So, yeah, not all women have, um, and I, I admire these women. If you think about that, but Katie Clatt in particular, she, she made a decision that, um, look, she wanted so desperately to get drafted that she had such a great year at Melbourne Uni, she was really close, that it just wasn't there for her. And then she said, well, I'm not going to, it's only 50 50. I'm not going to say I want to go back um, and work in America because her, her visa was up. She, she had a lot of a lot of things going on. And the conversations you have to have with these people um, are, are tough because they're, they're away from home. They're you know, a bit like us going over to, to the UK and, and trying to do it in soccer or something like that. It's, it's just the thought of it is daunting. And, um, They've got to fit in with a new group of friends. The whole thing, it's just really tough. But all of the women um, that you mentioned are so resilient. And I think that's why I like the female AFLW spaces because there's so many stories of resilience, whether it is travelling, whether it is giving up you know, their, their work-life balance, whether it's giving up the opportunities to have children, for instance. I mean, some of them would give up opportunities to have children. And that's why I get so touched when I, when I do see... Um, Laura Gerard in the photo with Lauren Moorcroft on Twitter with her baby. It's, that's amazing because it, she, she's got to play AFLW. She's now getting to have a family in her early 30s and she comes from another country. It's, it's, a, it's a great story of um, persistence, resilience and you know, how to, to try and get the best out of their work-life balance because yeah, there's so many women that are playing AFLW that are underpaid um, in some ways undervalued, and but they still they still stick at it because they they love the sport so much, and there's something in that. I want to skip back for a moment. It's my uh, problem neglecting it when we're mentioning all the Diamond Creek stuff. There's something else you achieved that was incredible through 2017 and before you took over the role at North Melbourne, which may have helped improve your resume a little bit. 2017 AFL Women's Under 18s National Champions with Vic Country. That's a hell of a lot of a skip in about 12 months or so to picking up your first ever win with Vic Country and then Vic Country then winning the championship, beating Vic Metro, your arch nemesis, by 27 points, beating Queensland again, New South Wales ACT, and then the biggest challenge, beating WA by 22 points. And I want to mention the names that made all Australian out of the Vic Country girls uh, who are all playing AFLW. Beck Webster, Darcy Gartridge, Bridie Kennedy, who's currently now at Weemstown VFLW, uh, Eden Zanka, Olivia Purcell, who's been named AFLW All-Australian this year, Tyler Hanks, and Lucy McAvoy. Yeah, it's a fair list too, isn't it? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, a lot of good kids on that side too. It's, uh, that, was, that was an amazing series. That, that was, um, I think, the start of those those group of girls were the start of the need to be able to kick Mark handball to reach the next level. Like it was almost like the year where they 
if you couldn't kick properly, for instance, you you really were frowned upon, um, no matter how good an athlete you were. And that um, that series was some really good football. That game against WA was a tough game of footy, and I can I can remember um, Liv Purcell. She she played some sort of guy. I can't remember having possession. She had a lot of possessions, but it was more it was more what she did with the ball. It was as you said before, instead of just kicking it forward, instead of just driving backwards out of a stoppage, she actually hit the forty five um, and thought about her footy. And we had a we had a bit of a philosophy with that team that if we gave the ball off, we we wanted to then get the, the possession back. So the, the midfield key KPI was to give, uh, to get it back and then then deliver the ball forward and uh, what it did do was spread the ground and because they were so highly skilled players like Lucy McAvoy just found space and, and had time because the, if the ball was turned over WA didn't have that boss and they were trying to go long and direct but we, we had our numbers um, to where the kick was going to land and yeah, that strategy worked really well and they, they were a special group that group too um, just reflecting them. If I recall, that year was held up in Queensland, I think, which um, yes. which you would have thought with those conditions would have um, favoured the Queensland and WA game plan where they like to spread and carry. Yes, correct. And, and there were a few things going against us. We had a couple of those girls played with injuries too. Um, Lucy McAvoy wasn't 100%. Um, I can't think of the ruck was. I'm not sure if it was Ren Karras. Then. I think Ren Karras might have been in that side too. Um I can't remember, but we had a we were down a ruck, um, and then we had a suspension. I can't think who got suspension, but we, we had someone get a suspension, um, which wasn't ideal either. But we really battled. Everything we seemed to do was a battle. But the girls were um, again; they were so resilient, and it's no no surprise to me that they all went on and um, did very well. Let's talk about putting a North Melbourne list together, which you were doing in consultation with the, the North Melbourne behind-the-scenes crew. Um, first of all, you got four players out of Collingwood, being Moana Hope, uh, Emma King, Jazz Garner and Jess Stuff. And first of all, you didn't get a text from Wayne going, mate, what are you doing to me? <laughs> no, I didn't. I, sh- I probably should have. <laughs> no, he, was, he was philosophical, but upset. That's, that's the way I'll put it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as we expected, players like um, Emma Carney and Caitlin Ashmore came across to North Melbourne due to that close Melbourne Uni connection. So for them, it was technically a, a homecoming, even though the Bulldog supporters weren't going to be happy about it. But you managed to bring in some other great recruits, such as Jenna Bruton coming out of the Western Bulldogs and winning a premiership there. Uh, Dr. Kate Gillespie-Jones, uh, formerly out of Seaford, and you managed to get her out of Carlton. Of course, you'd coached her there, as well as Danielle Hardiman, and you managed to get down from Brisbane that stage, Talia Randall and Jamie Stanton. What are those conversations like with players that are already at an AFLW club and you're trying to convince them, look, I know you've had two years, I know you're just getting started there, but come start again at a new club? Yeah, I think the key, the key to it is um, honesty in selling and, and being able to deliver what you're selling. And um, yeah, North Melbourne, we came up with a, with a, a strategy that what does that program look like in two to three years' time? And we wanted success with one of them. The other one was we wanted to play a certain way and then we had our culture underneath that. And um, we basically sold that to each player that we tried to get 
and we missed out on a couple as well. Um, and, and that's obviously going to happen in the, in the process. But we were, we were able to sell a message that we'd thought about it and this is the way, this is what we're going to do, but more importantly, how we're going to do it. So we, we showed them how we were going to get there and how, what we were going to do. Um, it was a way to, I came up with a game plan um, that we presented to the players as well. And so they knew what style of play, roughly what position they were going to play as well, um, which is a very different way to doing it because clearly if you take back to what we said before with Diamond Creek, I went and watched them and came up with a game plan to suit what Diamond Creek was. Um, so it's very different to come up with a game plan and recruit players to it. But we did that. And I think the reason we were so successful was because when you do that, you're almost, you're either one of two things is going to happen. You're either not going to deliver and they're going to lose or you're going to deliver and you're going to be successful. And and that's, that's where I thought the, the off-field team um, at North Melbourne is incredible. And they're led by Laura Kane, um, Matt Palazzo, Reese Howard, Alex Beach, just really good people in their areas and extraordinary at their job. And it doesn't, you know, the coaching, the coaching side of it is one aspect of it. And, in, in, if I look, reflect back to the Carlton time, that thing was doing a bit of everything. And the poor bloke, he, he was recruiting, coaching, he was painting walls, he was doing all sorts of stuff. And, you know, that's, North Melbourne basically allowed me to coach, which is my area of expertise. Um, Lee Harbour was able to do the list management. That's, that's his area of expertise. And that's the last day, operations, or you do the operations. So we all trusted each other in each other's roles. And, there's an old saying, you know, know your role, play your role, and we're able to do that, and we sold that to the players. And, yeah, most of them liked it. We missed out on a couple, but we got mostly what we wanted. Reflecting on that, who is, I guess, the one big name that got away from you, whether it's a case of you just couldn't improve on draft order or a trade that didn't work through, or they thought about coming across and they said, actually, no, I've been given a better deal or I've changed my mind and I'd like to stay elsewhere. Who was possibly well, we the never, big fish you would have liked? Yeah, well, I'm, well clearly I'd like uh, David Pierce. And, <laughs> but no, none of them. Um, but not any one player in particular, just as general. So what, what you do in that situation, you try and do it the right way. So you go to a manager who controls five or six players and says, well, this is what we're looking for. Um, now, I know we went to um, – we had several chats with um, same managers a few times and they – would then contact the players, but we didn't actually like have a name on. Well, we didn't have, for instance, I use Daisy Pierce's name. She wasn't one, but Daisy Pierce was it? Like, it wasn't a magnet on the wall. We're going, okay, we want her. This is what we're going to do to get her. It wasn't quite like that. It was like it was more the other way, where um, right, our our spine's done. We've got our outside runs. We've got our wingers. So I'd really like a, a lockdown back and a running back who's available, and you'd go through see their manager, and you just exactly what I said, you'd throw the story out there and how we're going to do it and um, and go from there. And what what then happened was you might not, that manager might say, look, I've got two or three plays that I, I control. Um, so-and-so wouldn't be, wouldn't be interested, may be interested. Um, but it didn't, it wasn't like we, you know, we picked a particular name and said we have to have this player and we're going to do everything together. It just, 
it was more to put the team together based on what was falling in place uh, quite quickly, by the way, at each time. So, yeah, I wouldn't really like to sort of give you a name that wouldn't be fair to them. I don't think a couple of them are still playing, but mm. it, it wasn't done that we must have this player build a side around. Um, it was done based on what we need for the team. Just to give everyone a little bit of an insight into that trade process without naming names, um, when you do sit down at the table, um, how many names do you roughly sit down with on a sheet of paper thinking, this is what we're looking outside of our club? Is it 10, 20 names that we're going, if there's anything, if, if any of these players may be available, it may not necessarily the deal gets done, but we're willing to talk about X, Y, Z player. I think it's the co- coaches don't make good list managers for a very good reason because <laughs> I used to have about one or two on my list and said to Reese, get this person. <laughs> Reese uh, thought a little bit differently, thank God, is a little bit more strategical and he would have, um, he might have 30 to 40 names that could fall in different ways based on what was happening in, you know, kicks and, um, yeah, what was happening as far as what draftees are coming up and that's, and that's, that's why a list manager is so important because a coach should be able to say to the list manager, I really like an extra ruck. I really like a key forward. And in my case, I implicitly trusted Reese, and he would go out and he would do the job and basically tell them, I've come up with this, this person, this person. And you know, you'd go meet him, have a coffee and see if you, if you align philosophies. And again, tell them that story that you, you've got what North Melbourne's about. And um, it's, a, it's a really smart way to do it and I think um, the judge, the judgment part of it for any list manager and coach is that it comes down to what is the draft like this year so do you take at the instance the draft this year is very good and that's quite deep so you know, do you not take uh, free agents and um, delisted players build your, build your 18 year olds up that are coming or do you because they haven't played only played three or four rounds, so until you go mature, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. And um, yeah, again, I, I reflect back to what called Damien Keeping had on his plate at Carlton with Graham Bergen, and um, yeah, it, the the system at, at North Melbourne that um, was come up, we came up with was just much more um, effective in trusting people in their role. Just, though, quickly on the flip side, um, how many questions do you feel as a coach, whether it comes via Reese through to you, of um, throw a random club out there. Brisbane has expressed an interest in this North Melbourne player. Are you willing to trade yes or no? Yeah, a lot of that goes on. Yeah, yeah. a lot of that goes on. And, and that comes, again, that comes down to uh, the list manager then looking at what is coming in the draft in that player's position the value of how that player has performed, what they're like off-field in, inside the, the club as well and um, what they're going on in their lives. And the big piece of AFLW is it's not as it's not as easy, particularly in the state life, it's not as easy to just say to a player, look, you know, use the Brisbane example. Um, yeah, Brisbane are interested in you and where you're going up to Brisbane. But you can't, it's, it's just different because the girls have got lives down here, they've got family, partners and, and all sorts of things, jobs. It's, it's just tough with AFLW, but there is a, there is a lot of that go on. Um, and pleasingly, pleasingly in, I think in the last 12 months, it goes on in a way that is respectful, collaborative, and 
yeah, there's a there's a really good chance that the, the player and the manager and the club will get a right outcome for the player, which is so important. Let's talk about before some of the players that you did pick up in the draft that I, I want to highlight, some that you had to let go. And we've talked before on air about it um, through the match of the day coverage. Um, one of them, um, two very different. One being George and Nanscorn. Um, as we spoke about at the time in our match of the day coverage last year, it was just a case of just too many midfielders in the mix. And she was number 22 out of a list of 21. She was just unlucky. She went to Essendon, won the BNF there. Um, surprisingly, didn't nominate for the most recent draft, which caught everyone by surprise. But fingers crossed she'll be back for 2021. Um, AFLW. And the other one, which is probably a little bit more controversial, was Mo Hope. She was the leading goal kicker when she was delisted. It wasn't announced by the club that she was delisted. She made the post on Instagram and a bit of a whack on the way out. Um, <laughs> how hard is it, particularly, you know, you may have the girls asking questions back, what's going on, etc. When, when particularly that happens? Yeah. I'll go with Georgia first. Georgia is... Um She's, she's another special person, really nice person, but so competitive and uh, just not in her nature to be not considered as part of the 21. And that's a good thing. She shouldn't She shouldn't accept that. And But we had such a good team and you know, it was tough to get her in the forward line. It was tough to get her in the midfield. And a couple of times we did, she did okay, but then you know, not, not to the point where she said, this is my spot and no one else can get it. And she was still learning the nuances of... Um, the game as well. Then when she went to Essendon, she you know, she blossomed, and all she needed was to play footy. It was just unfortunate that her first her first crack at it was AFLW, and she had had the you know, the winter and um, got a couple of seasons under her belt. She'd be a good player, and yeah, I've got no idea why she didn't nominate. Um, that, that's up to her, and maybe she she just felt she needed a refresh, and she might have had something go on, but. Um, Georgia can play footy and she'll be a really good AFLW player if she wants to because she just works so hard. And, um, yeah, good player good player, and a, a nice person off field as well. Um, Mo Hope is, was interesting. So Mo Hope was, well, we got Mo in for the first year and intended to keep Mo. But the, uh, the difference was that our reflection on the first season was that our forward half, scoring opportunities weren't where they, we wanted them to be to beat Fremantle and Adelaide. And that came down to a pressure thing. It doesn't mean that Mo doesn't deliver pressure. It means that we felt that her first uh, few metres of, of speed of, of catching defenders and putting pressure on the source where the ball was at the time didn't tie in with having Emma King there who also wasn't you know, elite that year in, in that space, she got a lot better in the second year, um, and we, we just we just felt that the balance wasn't quite right, and um, nothing to do because I know there's a lot of things said about the way Mo presented and trained and things like that. Mo was a pleasure to coach, and um, yeah, you know she's a she's a girl that has a lot of outside influences in her life, and she's got a lot going on. She's a she's one of those women that runs a business. She looks. She looks after us. It's just a whole thing. It's just a busy life. And, um, but what a powerhouse of women's footy. And, you know, she's, she should be very proud of what she, she's done for football. Um, the amount of press and attention that she, she's helped, she's inadvertently helped other players 
um, game profile. And, and that's a fact. And yeah, it was disappointing the way it ended with Moses. I think yeah, putting the club first, and I'm, I'm in Mo's situation at the minute where I'm putting the club first because I think you should always put the club first. But um, yeah, Mo, Mo was a terrific person and she got a heart of gold and yep, she's, she's, does this and she does survive her and she does all these other things. She's earning a living for her family. And you know, I, I read um, that she's pretty happy at the moment and that, that's fantastic and I wish her all the best. Let's talk about a couple of number one draft picks that you managed to take. This is the first pick that North Melbourne has had in each respective uh, draft. And the 2018 draft, leading into the 2019 season, because obviously you got a lot of those players signed beforehand, you had to wait to the second round and pick number 25. That's when you took Daisy Bateman out of the Oakley Chargers. She'd actually played a little bit of football with Collingwood in the VFLW program for that year and thought of such highly that this year Daisy Bateman actually won the Best Young Player Award with the Roos. Yeah, she's a super person and a super footballer. Daisy is um, is much maligned in amongst opposition clubs, and that she gets under the radar. She is annoying. She actually she doesn't mind mouthing off, and and doing this. the thing with Daisy was she was a little bit similar in those situations, and the forward pressure that we wanted um, at our level, not not just the tackles, but the the, the, the pressure on quick pressure on the opposition ball. Um, wasn't up to scratch. She went away. She worked so hard. She got so strong. She got fit. Um, she had a bit of a foot injury in the VFLW that just worked her butt off. And then when she was in rehab, the, the great thing about Daisy was she did so much vision with me and um, just studied the way different players. She watched um, uh, VFLW games and we picked players out and how they went about it. And AFLW came around this year and last season and um, and she flew. She just she became a different player, and that's credit to her because people need to remember Daisy had a significant foot injury, and she was able to rehab that, and um, not just rehab it, but come back stronger. And then when the time was right that she was able to run, um, she worked her butt off and got herself so fit. So yeah, she's got a, a lot of upside to go yet. And um, yeah, if I had to pick one player at North that I think we've got a lot of the most upside. I reckon Daisy would be it. The number one pick that North Melbourne took in the draft for 2019 leading to the 2020 season was pick number 10 overall. And it caught a few people by surprise because everyone was expecting the under-18s all to get taken first. Newton, McAvoy, uh, throwing their Patrikios, Lagoya, etc. You went with a senior-listed player out of the VFLW. She played in the grand final with the Western Bulldogs only after just coming out of the VAFA with Marcelin the year before in Ali Gavalis. Yes, yeah, so that was that, this is where the um, the template comes into into effect. So we we worked out that we wanted where our not our weaknesses, but our areas of improvement were um, for our game plan year one. And to beat Fremantle and Adelaide, who we thought at the time were going to be a great side, um, we needed an extra midfielder. We needed a certain type of midfielder, and it made sense that. There are a couple of the kids um, that maybe could have done the job, but Ali Gavalis had all the attributes other than the kicking. And we thought, well, kicking is something you can work on. And her interview was based around 
um, her, I suppose, her temperament, um, whether she is likely to work at her kicking. And we were sold. The interview, she's a great person, Ali Gavalis, and um, we're surprised that she got to us, actually. We, we thought the Bulldogs might have might have got her a little bit higher, but... Um, yeah, when she when she was available, we, we snapped her up, no problem at all, and we just knew that she would fit what we needed um, in the team, rather than taking, I suppose, someone that can kick and handball a little bit cleaner and a little bit more skilled. We we just thought Ellie is what we need, and she slotted straight in to our team. Another senior listed player you picked up out of the VFLW and she was actually on your Melbourne University squad. She would finish top 10 in the club champion for the Kangaroos uh, this year was Vivian Saad. Now, if I recall correctly, I think we actually had a conversation last year where it was even suggested that Vivian might even have to look elsewhere to try and find her AFLW opportunities. It was just by luck that uh, Jess Duffin was expecting. In fact, she's five weeks away now from the um, little schnitz popping out. Um, but um, Vivian uh, water season, 65 votes in the club champion award, as I said, uh, top 10 fit in beautifully, and the Saudi army that followed her along. <laughs> yeah, and really good for, for membership as well, it was fantastic, so um, thanks to Saad, but uh, yeah, no, Viv was a classic example of that, similar to Lauren Aarons and um, Holly Whitford and all these these other ones, Caitlin Greiser, Clara Fitzpatrick, all these ones that we had these conversations with to play AFLW, probably not going to be with us, but let's get you in the best shape to get you drafted. Uh, this came in on Monday mornings. You know, she came in nice and early before her work. We'd have a kick. Um, work so hard on her game. And, uh, yeah, it, the cards just fell her way. And we, at that stage, just up in, um, just up in replacement, there were a couple of other names that we, we were looking at. But, um, yeah, again, it, it falls back down if you have a plan, if you have a, a business model um, and you stick to it, it's usually successful because the the template told us or the, the, I suppose the feeling told us to take a player that was ready to go skill-wise and there's a few there's a few of them around that played a lot of footy and you could get that player in and they would back up what you've got. But we, we saw a competitive advantage with Viv um, She's a little bit unique in the way she rucks because she's very good at clearances. So you're actually getting a poor midfielder to help you with the centre bounce clearances. And she, I think she, I think she actually was the, the, I think she was the number one ruckman for clearances um, in um, in the competition in the AFLW. So she, she performed really well. Uh, yeah, she gave away a couple of free kicks that she probably shouldn't have at crucial times too. But that's part of her learning. She's just new to the game. And you know, she's working hard at the moment. And I spoke to her yesterday, actually. And um, yeah, she's, uh, she's going to play a lot of footy for North Melbourne. And terrific person off the field. And a great family and friends she's got. Um, she's those, those types of people you want to have around your club because they, they help the culture. But that selection was pretty much done based on the templates that we came up with. That was our need. So that's the person we're going to get, and the same with Ali Gabala. Two more players I want to touch on before we move on, um, saving the best to last. But for, for Aileen Gilroy, we mentioned her name earlier when you talked about the five non-Australians that you coached. For her and the year that she had, she had not played a tackle sport before, finishing 
top five in the voting on 83. Um, an, an outstanding year from the Irish woman. Yeah, correct. Just, I, I know I said Georgian Ann Scarling was the most competitive person. I forgot about Aileen. Aileen is the most competitive person I've ever met in my life. She just wants success for the team and um, she is so critical, maybe at times too critical of her own performance. Um, places a lot of pressure on herself, but uh, well, you know, it's no surprise she gets results because just a very determined athlete and she's an elite player over in Ireland um, in the Gaelic game. And um, yeah, it was just the, the speed and the ability to take the game on. And when she first came to North Melbourne, you do a mini match him and she'd head off in all sorts of directions and. Um, you know, the kicking was, was just average, but she just worked so hard on the off on the off days and um, so they weren't allowed to work, so she she had time on her hands and she just used it wisely, did vision, got herself fixed. It was a different type of fitness, so she had to do a little bit of work with her strength. And um, yeah, she performed well and it was no surprise to me that she uh, she finished in the top five because she was critical to it. The club champion, 112 votes, one vote ahead of Emma Carney, Jazz Garner. I recall you saying on the Match of the Day coverage um, last year uh, when we had a little interview because Jazz Garner was uh, the captain for the day, if I recall, in a game that Melbourne Uni were playing. And you mentioned on air, you said she will captain North one day, which caught a few of us by surprise, not to to do with anything when it comes to her skill, which has gone up yet another level as we saw this 2020 AFLW season. But her nature, since we've known her through the St Kilda Sharks, has always been the shy, quiet one, almost hidden away. I mean, when she came up through the Sharks, you almost forgot about her as a forward because there was Mo Hope in the goal square. There was Phoebe McWilliams at centre-half forward. She was kind of the third fiddle, and you never thought about Jazz. What do you see yep. behind the scenes as that transformation in jazz? I think confidence. Um, the, the the fact that she now believes that she belongs in the game and can play really good footy at the top level. And I think one of the one of the things with jazz is with a captain, you, you look for the substance. What's what's behind the um, the actual person? And you know, leadership is about studying yourself and with experience, you come up with a style and a set of values that you believe in and, <clears throat> and draw on, on those things. And, um, you know, there's, there's a saying that says, can you can you actually really lead others if you can't lead yourself? And um, Jazz typifies that because she works so hard on her body, getting her body so, right so she gets fit. And she's one of those leaders. And she will captain North one day when the, when the great Emma Carney's finished. And... Um, Jazz is a, a leader that does it on the field. So she doesn't say a lot, but when she does say it, everyone listens. And we encouraged her this year to speak up a lot more. If, she, if you see something's not right, speak up, set the player. And she did that. And players listen because they respect her so much. And, um, yeah, and she's a, she's a special human being as well off field. And uh, a lot of time for Jazz Garner. She's, yeah, it's her or Chloe Malloy for me, probably the, the two best. You're listening to our chat with former Kangaroos AFLW coach Scott Gowans right here in Melbourne on RSN 927's digital radio channel Carnival and also via the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast. When we return on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and how it stopped the 2020 AFLW season. Been playing for a while. 
sweet kicks Cause footy makes you smile Sweet kicks football If you're getting ready for the trials Gotta go the extra mile Sweet kicks football Not always hearing that sweet sound when you kick the ball? Need to develop your footwork or explosive speed? Want to take the next step in your footy career? Then you need Sweet Kicks. More info on our Facebook page or go to our website, sweetkicksfootballacademy.com.au Gotta go the extra mile Sweet Kicks Football you're listening to the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast here on RSN Carnival. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks for your company. We're chatting with the former Kangaroos AFLW coach, Scott Gowans. 2020 was a season that was stopped early by COVID-19. Uh, we'll talk about two phases through it. Um, first of all, I think it was the Wednesday night, if I recall correctly, when we were supposed to be heading into what was going to be round seven when the season got stopped and we're told we're jumping straight into finals. What's it like in that short period when, first of all, no one knew what the final structure was going to be? You didn't know who you were going to be playing. You didn't know where you were going to be playing. And when you did find out, it's great. You've got less than 48 hours to turn around a new game plan when you were originally going to play somebody else. Yeah, it was tough. It, it was it was very hard. And, um, you know, I, I feel for the AFL because they, they did it tough too. And we forget them. We always look for someone to blame in these situations. But... Um, the AFL, through the AFLPA, went out to the players and said, "What, what would you, what structure would you like?" And they voted on a couple of contingencies, and the one that we ended up going with, with us playing Collingwood, was the one the players voted for. So, um, and that's fair enough. The AFL backed that, but yeah, it was a difficult time to to set yourself, but also a difficult time just to make sure that. Um, you know, your health, like everyone's health was okay as well because everyone was starting to worry about COVID and what was happening and um, there were a lot of rumours at that stage. And, yeah, yeah, we at one stage we were playing Carlton and um, I think it was another stage we were playing someone else, coming with the other one was, but ended up playing Collingwood and I suppose it was the same for Collingwood as well. And uh, just a, yeah, just a difficult time and... I often think in those times you forget, you do forget about the people in places that are making these decisions to have to own them. And, you know, Nicole Livingston and her team there and Stephen Hawking, they, it's tough. You know, they, they're, they're looking after the interests and health and well-being of, of everyone, administrators, players, coaches, the whole lot. And I think that, I think that decision to, to do what they did by backing the players with the format the players wanted, was pretty much all they could do, and it turned out to be the wrong way to go. And I would—I said at the time I would have loved to play in the grand final instantly, Fremantle or not, uh, go over there and play Fremantle, but not to be. I'd also be happy if Fremantle were crowned premiers um, because I think it gives a finality to the season. And again, it wasn't to be, and yeah, it was—it was a tough, tough forty-eight hours that one. Let's talk about that because you just survived against Collingwood in that first final. But if things went as expected with the favourites winning, continuing through, 
you would have had to have faced Fremantle in the grand final over there. It would have been a bit of deja vu because you played Frio over there uh, in 2019, which they beat you, which got Fremantle that spot into the semi-final, which they would lose to Carlton. What did you have in mind different for taking on Fremantle over in WA for Ding Ding Round 2? Well, similar to what we spoke about with Darabin before, everything we did at North this year, or last last season, was to beat Fremantle and Adelaide. And we had two different ways to, to play against each of them. Um, we did it against Adelaide, obviously, and beat them quite easily in, in Hobart. Um, but the Fremantle one was probably where the game changes from game season one to season two were set up and... I'll say it to the day I died. Full respect to female, they didn't lose a game. Um, but, yeah, they... I don't want to disrespect females, but I think you know, they did a huge job and Trent Kip was an amazing coach. But I would have... If they had played Carlton and Melbourne and beaten one of them um, or us and during the season, then I, I probably would have known. But I still think there's a doubt there and we'll never know it. But I was pretty confident what the stats were telling me from our stats, from our uh, what we picked to the way we play, that we would give it a really good crack. And they'd definitely be favourites because they're home ground and they beat us the year before. But yeah, I, I just wish that had happened because I, I really reckon we would have given them a good run for their money. And this probably ties into the next question, the equation we haven't talked about as part of uh, North Melbourne. But um, should have Fremantle had lost in round seven or in round eight, which would have both put you at about one and one percentage would have been close. Um, there is a real possibility that it could have been North Melbourne. If you if you had gotten just above on percentage above Fremantle, it could have been North Melbourne versus Fremantle in the AFLW grand final in Hobart, and I say that because the same weekend that grand final was fixtured, North Melbourne were scheduled to host Fremantle in the AFL men's in Hobart. So there could have possibly been a double header down in Hobart. We should roll into that saying, what was it like doing what Beck Goddard had to do in her first two seasons when she had the Darwin camp and the Adelaide camp, having to coach where you've got your Melbourne camp and your Tasmanian camp? That would I didn't realise that. that. That would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Tasmanian piece is it, it was it was hard and it's still still a work in progress and you know, the to have seven or eight of your players separated um, like that, it's tough to uh, not so much bond. The bonding part was you can get away with through we use Zoom and we use you know, we'd go down there and some of the staff would go down there each week, so you'd have you'd have contact. But it's the it's the stuff when you're doing a drill in Melbourne and it's a ball movement drill and it's just not working. Take your example before you know, it's going 90 degrees. You don't want it 90. You want it 45. But you go down there and take training on the off night, which I would do. I'd fly down, and you, know, you can't do that with seven players. And then two aren't training because they're in rehab. So you down to five. You can't replicate that knowledge that the bulk of the team got down in Tasmania. Um, so it is a tough one. It's a it's an interesting one. We tried to do it as best we can. We, we did it okay in Season 1, learnt a lot of lessons, did it much better in Season 2, but um, it is still a work in progress. 
for the part-time footballers that you have, if you have been lucky, such as Emma Carney, to be working at North Melbourne, so they're in the environment full-time, 24-7, what have they said to you privately? How do they feel about playing part-time football? Is there one or two, again, without naming names, that have come to you saying, look, either A, I'm really struggling when it comes to the hours and balancing responsibilities for the job, with responsibilities for AFLW, are there some that are saying, look, I am feeling the financial pinch a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's conversations that you have quite often. Um, so if you have a tangible bringing up two kids, it's, mm. there's a lot of um, flexibility needed from a club point of view to a player and from a player to a club. And it's a, it's a matter of working out what the balance is and what is the goal of that particular player. If it's, a, if it's an 18-year-old player coming to the system, their needs are different to the 28-year-old player. It's, um, you know, they've got a mortgage and in, in Sophie's case, got kids. So we tried to take the view that there's got to be some give and take and um, you, you try to balance it as best you can while trying to run an elite program. I'm not one to say to players, yes, you do this and no, you can't do that. So we try to find where if a player has to miss some trainings and do sessions uh, away from the club, they've got to do it because of their work. They have to do it. Um, you know, we try to work out living arrangements with balancing travelling time, um, the way we did it with timing with our training. So if our training was expected, the players were expected at the club at 5.45, Back the other way, the expectation from the player to us was that at 8.30 they were off the track. Not at 8.31, 8.30 they were off the track, regardless if we were running late for drills. Because that way they could plan their lives and plan around the training and it didn't dictate them. And, you know, I know, I know in season one in particular, a few clubs, I suppose the, the clubs to 11 pm, and then travelling an hour and a half home. It's, yeah, it's. There's a piece around the welfare um, that's in the books, like it's, it's written in the books about welfare and what you've got to do. But and there's also a sensibility piece around these these women are trying to play an elite sport while earning a living um, or study and bettering themselves in, in life. And yeah, there's the, the days of saying, you know, if you do not train, you will not play. Just do not apply in AFLW. Let's talk about having to plan over the last couple of months after COVID-19 has happened. As we spoke to you prior to the VFLW finals last year, you said you were going to be holding on to the VFLW coaching reins for 2020. That was the plan. COVID-19 put the brakes on things and and there was a confusing press release that came out. It was more related to the men's side of the game where it said that the AFL clubs would not be participating in the VFL and everyone read that on um, face value as men's but we weren't quite a hundred percent sure was that going to mean women's as well um it was the year that melbourne university was leaving and north melbourne was coming in to take their place in the vflw what were your plans up until last week for a vflw season were you planning to go ahead or were you told no this is like the men's it's not happening yeah it was like the men's that it wasn't happening um that, that was that was what I was led to believe. And, um, yeah, we just were waiting on confirmation of that and up until last week when um, a lot of the players were were trying to find local clubs 
in leagues that are going to go ahead and we're trying to uh, facilitate that from an admin perspective. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was the intention was that it was also for the women's as well. I know from speaking to a couple of coaches and players in the other VFLW clubs, non-AFL line, they're still unsure of what is going on. But as we said, that took you up to the point of last week um, when the Zoom call came through that your contract would not be renewed. Just to clear, I guess, one point up when we talk about the finance side of things, was that in relation to when they explained to you the general overall cost-cutting from the club or was that to relate to the soft cap restrictions that are introduced? Yeah, it wasn't wasn't defined either way. Um, my perception of it was that it was the overall cut um, with the with the women's and the men's soft cap combining um, next year, and um, yeah, it's a, it wasn't really um, when when you when you hear news like that, you don't. Because it came as a bit of a shock, mm. I didn't actually dive into too many questions. So I didn't have too many questions because I was trying to get, I was trying to get myself together uh, from the perspective of understanding what was going on. Um, but um, since had you know a couple of conversations before and um, spoke with Ben Buckley, the chairman, uh, Ben Amafio a few times, the CEO as well. And but I haven't bothered diving into that reason after the decision's done. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely put as a finance reason. They have to get multiple people that are in the club into dual roles, and um, yeah, that's where it, that's where it fits. So that you know, I was I was just a, a victim of the circumstance from a financial point of view, and uh, Darren Crocker will be given the the dual role of pro scout and AFLW head coach. Um, and then there's further further changes to come as well. I want you to give a bit of praise to your assistant coaches for the moment because fingers crossed that they all stay, but if you've gone, we don't know who could go next, not only at your club, but also at other clubs, as mentioned by Daniel Harford on um, RSN 927, where he says he doesn't know what ramifications this will have throughout the industry. But can you talk up those that have assisted you in, in the coaches' boxes and the skills that they bring? I mean, as we said, we hope they stay with the Kangaroos, but who knows if they will also have to look elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. So, Beck Goulet did the forward line and uh, came from Colter Tannins and a passionate, smart coach that's um, very analytical. And, um, yeah, he's a, a young guy that's just had a, his first baby and um, he's got great aspirations to coach as well and, yeah, I think he could um, become a very good coach one day if he chooses to pursue it. Um, Lauren Moorcroft, similar to Jane. Uh, Lauren is a little bit newer to coaching than Jane, but the player that I had at Diamond Creek and the uh, transition from, from playing, it took a little bit to talk her into coaching, but she's taken to it so well. And um, with another another couple of years, she'll be, she'll be right there with, with Jane and pushing for an AFLW head spot and I know that she's passionate about it and wants to do it one day so um, um, yeah, fingers crossed for her and then Nick Rutley of course with the defence and um, coach Carlton when Damien Keating unfortunately fell ill and um, you know, went um, to be an assistant at Carlton and then uh, did the Danny Stingray so he sort of followed me followed my, my little path there um, and we got Nick Rutley in this year, and he did a great job. 
of the club and, and um, Mick's got ambition also to coach and I know he's um, he's very keen or we're all very keen to stay but who knows in this environment what the structure will be and um, I hope for their sake they do stay and yeah look I, I look forward to seeing where they go with their coaching as well and not too dissimilar to Dennis Armfield in year one you know, Dennis came in and did our, our ball movement in year one and just through his local footy commitments and his work, he just couldn't do you too. And um, aspirations to, to, to the women's space as well. He's been a great advocate. He was with, with us at Carlton in year one and um, spent a lot of time and enjoys the women's sport like I do. And yeah, I hope, I hope all of them you know, um, one day go on and coach their own sides. And I suppose it's not too dissimilar to the playing. It's, some of these people are in really good jobs and it's tough to take a, a really big pay cut to to take a full-time role and, and coach in, in AFLW because um, the money's just not there yet for, for coaches either. And it's, a, it's an area that, particularly system of coaches, it's the hours they do for what they get is, is really low. And um, they do it because they want to succeed and they want to push themselves and get better at their coaching and they enjoy AFLW. And a lot of us, Players, coaches, administrators, everyone—we all we all get paid. We you know, we get paid okay, but um, yeah, there's a there's a way to go to to for equalisation with with pays and and things like that. And there's still a big big piece of it that you need to love the sport to be in it. I want to talk about reaction from inside and then outside the club. First of all, for inside, no doubt you would have had either text messages or phone calls with your players since the announcement was made. Um, Many players would have gone through completely different circumstances. Some were just new under your tutelage. Some have been around and seen many coaches, and for them it's, ah, well, got to continue on. And and for some others, like we mentioned before with Ash Riddell and Sophie Epinzangelo, followed you all the way from the Creekers up until present day, which must be harder for them. What have the conversations been like? Because, again, as we mentioned at the top, it's not like when Tom Hunter went when... A coach is at the bottom of the ladder and he goes, everyone's kind of, they don't want it to happen, but they kind of expect it to happen. Where this, as we said, just came out of the blue. Yeah. So she's actually texting me as we're talking. (laughs) So um, Sophie is very passionate and she's very loyal. So she, um, along with Kate Gillespie-Jones and all these other players that I'm very close with, Jess Trams, you do form relationships with these people um, and the thing, the thing with it is, Ash Riddell's the same, and it's it's all about it's all about having that loyalty to, to someone, um, having loyalty to the club, but doing what's right for your career. And I, I, I've been overwhelmed by the support I've had within the playing group and the staff at North Melbourne, and even in the hierarchy that made the decision, I've felt absolutely supported. So. Absolutely no problem with that at all. But someone like Sophie Abitango, she's only ever had me as a coach. And um, what a great opportunity for a young woman to be coached by Darren Crocker, who is a coaching legend and a hell of a nice guy. And as I said to, to these guys, you, you need to look at it like I've put, I've put a piece of the case in and you know, take what I've taught and apply it. You're going, to get, you're going to get Darren Cocker. I don't think they realise his credentials. You know, 
he's going to come in with another piece of the cake and you're going to be in such a better position as an elite footballer because you're going to get another voice right at the time when you're in a premiership window. Through circumstances, and ideally I'd be there, but circumstances dictate, and if it has to be anyone, let it be Darren Crocker. I mean, I relied on him a lot um, while I was at the club and he helped me out with some stoppage stuff and he just makes the difficult look simple and the girls um, the girls will love him. So, yeah, I, um, I think Sophie and Ash and Kate and, and all the others, they... Yep, they're definitely showing you support and everything like that, which is really nice. But it's um, it's a matter of why you're in this game. You're only in the game a short time, and it's an elite sport. So take the opportunity to to hear a different voice and see where it takes you. And finally, the reaction from outside, which no doubt you probably would have cast an eye over social media at some stage. And obviously, you've spoken on SEN and other radio stations and uh, and the Age as well. Um, the feedback, of course, we know uh, your offsider from Vic Metro days, Wayne Siegman, uh, gave his opinion, not too happy about it. Beck Goddard, who had to leave Adelaide, she also gave who, her two cents worth. I've thrown in my bob's worth as well. But the theme comes out of it two ways, not just the bagging of North over what happened, but everyone unanimously is saying, oh, geez, what a nice bloke Scotty Gowans is. How could this happen to such a great bloke? How do you feel when you're getting that it's a bit of pill that you're now without a gig, but everyone's just praising on, geez, not only is he a good coach, he's a ripping bloke. Well, I suppose it's better than them all saying he's a, he's a bit of a bugger and he, uh, he can't coach. <laughs> but look, it has been nice. And I, I have um, I have run my eye of it because my wife, Jodie, kind of made me, to be honest. Um, it's just part of the process, which on reflection was probably good. And I did that a couple of days ago and, I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I've been super lucky, and the only reason I've been lucky is because of the wonderful women in the game. And um, yeah, it's it's an honour. And I, I honestly believe that you. I think I said it in one of the interviews. My mum saying, which was, um, if you can't see the sunshine, be the sunshine. And she said that to me quite often, and I reflected on that. My mum passed away a couple of years ago, and I've, I've got that on my desk. And you know, I. I love coaching. I'd, I'd move into state to do a role. I, I'm passionate. I, you know, I'm driven with it. Um, and I, I think I've got something to offer a playing group. But the, the support just backs that up a little bit. Like it backs up and gives you a sense of belief at a time when you, um, you know, you, you do. You sit down in the chair and you go, what the hell has just happened? And um, yeah, so I've been buoyed by that. And people you don't know and probably never will, but. It's just those little comments, and you've got to be careful, of course, because social media can definitely go the other way. Um, but, yeah, I've been bored, and I really appreciate everything, to be honest. I've felt completely supported. We'll go to our second last question, and I guess that's looking ahead to the future. We're not going to mention the Tigers' job is available, but it's available. Um <laughs> as, as you do look for, as you said, you know, you'd happy to, to coach anywhere. What is your philosophy moving forward on that? Is it a case of, did you get into a mode now where either A, you chase the job, or B, do you just get all your ducks in order and wait for someone to come to you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, Dean Rice is my coaching mentor and has been right through Stingray, Big Country, uh, Diamond Creek and North and, and while well, at Carlton. So I've, I've been very lucky with that. So I had a, a coffee with him the day after it happened and I said to him, the way 
I feel at the moment is like I want to 9am Monday walk, morning walk into another club and get going. That's, that's only natural because it happened suddenly I didn't see it coming. Um, his advice is to take a few weeks, think about it, have a look what, what comes about. You never know, something might come up out of the blue. And my priority is that I want to coach AFLW again, but I also accept that if that doesn't happen, I've got some other things in, in the life that um, I can turn to, and then I'll coach somewhere else, um, and let's level down or, or whatever it might be. But uh, the first, the first and foremost, I think for me would be just to see what happens. So it's not just North Melbourne in this; it's all the other clubs in the same boat. They're struggling and for survival, and they can't just sort of say, "Oh, we'll, we'll just go and get a, a coach or a." a physio or a doctor right now, but they just can't do it. And everyone's in a little bit of unknown until that we get a little more clarity around what's happening. Um, you know, then I think things will, will sort themselves out. And the answer might be you know, Richmond, because they've got no coach, everyone focuses on that. But you know, they might they might employ someone internally. So they might do what North have done and go with a dual role. Um, they just need to, to work that out. And if they... I won't chase it, but if they contact me, of course I'd have the conversation. When the time's right, I've got a few months up the sleeve. Um, so I'll, I'm still contracted till October. So now I can sit back, uh, take a bit of a break, reset, and then, then if I haven't heard anything by then, then you know, I will start chasing different jobs and in footy. And, and if that doesn't come about, then I'll be outside footy. And finally, before we let you go, it's normally a question we ask to players, so it's unusual for us to ask as a coach, but we'll ask it. How do you feel when you sit down at the computer, type into Google your name, and there pops your up your own Wikipedia page talking about Scott Gowans, AFLW coach? Well, it's funny you said that. You've been talking to my kids. One of my kids, they came around for dinner um, last night and did it at the table, which is the first time I've actually uh, seen it. And so I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't actually know that that, that happened. So I mean, I knew about the video, but I didn't know that I was on it as far as um, having information on me. So it was, it was quite funny to read, to be honest, surreal, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I, I it's, it's weird because I don't feel in a reflective, I'm, I'm trying to reflect because Ricey explained to me reflection is really important in this period. But I actually don't feel in a reflective mood. I, I want to get on with it. That's, that's, I'm still like, like it's not a. I don't want revenge on North or anything like that. I, I want to get on with it because I feel I have a lot to offer a playing group in a club. And yeah, I just I'm, I'm probably still in a mode where I know I've got to sit back, but I'll keep. Doing, I'm doing two courses, one in leadership at the moment, um, and there's some coaching stuff that I'm going to do as well with um, just a local local club just to help them with a the director of coaching thing. So I've got a little bit to do and but I just want to get back into it, Peter, to be honest. I am not really reflecting it did the Wikipedia thing, it did make me reflect and think about geez, you know, what I've done and what I've achieved and you have today, to be honest, for the first time. Um, but yeah, I, I feel energized and just want to get on with it. Well, Scott, thank you once again for being so generous with your time, not only today through this long and extensive interview, but all the times that uh, you've granted us for interviews during our Match of the Day coverage going right back to 2017. 
again, we're sorry that uh, you're not coaching in the AFLW at the moment, but our fingers crossed that something comes up for you very, very quickly and we see you back in youth girls and women's football. Oh, thanks, Peter, and uh, thanks for all your support over the years too. It's, uh, you do an amazing job, so thanks, mate. And finally, as we wrap up this week's podcast, I just want to say for the record that Scott Gowans is one of the most nicest people I've ever met in the women's footy community. Always going out of his way to say hi, always making time for us. As we just heard just then, a one-hour, 45-minute interview. We did this interview just a couple of days after he'd been let go by the Kangaroos. He was within his full rights to say, nah, don't want to talk about it. I'm feeling pretty down. I just want to go fishing. I want to forget about footy. He could have turned to us and said, well, look, you're not a mainstream media outlet. I don't want to talk to you. You're not worthy of it. Instead... During his time, for example, is when he was coaching VFLW with Diamond Creek and Melbourne University, on match days when we'd be at the ground two hours before the first bounce, he would come up and say hi to us off air and chat all things footy and give us a little bit of insight into the things that he was trying to do with his team to give you better insight when we do our broadcasts. And remember, we're just volunteers. We're footy broadcast tragics, journalism students that are trying to improve their craft and former footballers trying to keep in touch with the game. He doesn't have to acknowledge us, but he comes out of his way to say hi. And he's done that with volunteers and supporters and, of course, the players themselves. He is a great people person, and that's why it becomes such a bigger shock in the women's footy community. Besides his incredible win record, 11 wins and three losses being let go at that stage, but by such a nice person has been let go by the kangaroos. But as they say, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Fingers crossed that such a quality individual as Scott Gowans will be picked up very shortly by a football club and on a very good paying contract as well because he deserves it. Our Women's Australian Rules Football podcast airs every Wednesday evening, 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, right here on RSN 927's digital radio channel in Melbourne, Carnival, also via rsn.net.au and streaming via the RSN Racing and Sport app. The podcast is also available right now by going to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, the iHeartRadio website and app and at warfradio.com. Just Google search Women's Australian Rules Football podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, WARF Radio is what you're looking for. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks so very much for your company on this special edition, our 197th episode of the Women's Australian Rules Football Podcast, and I look forward to your company again next week.